everyone. I'm Naya Swami Asha, and we're on class number 10 of The Essence of Self-Realization, The Wisdom of Paramahansa Yogananda, recorded and compiled by his disciple, uh, Swami Kriyananda. A really an absolutely fabulous book. It's just the words of Master as Swami Kriyananda wrote them down and remembered them and in the very first class of this series, which if you haven't listened to it, you can go back and find it posted online. I described the process of writing this book and how Swamiji attuned himself to Master's Consciousness. If you didn't hear that first class, I, I highly recommend it because it really helps you appreciate what this book is about. So we're on chapter 10, which is called Working Out Karma. Earlier we have talked about karmic law and the law of reincarnation and the way the world is and various other parts. So now we're talking about, now that we understand all these realities, we're talking about working out the karma, which is really the whole point. Um, Many years ago, a woman friend of mine came to me for counseling because she was in a very complicated relationship conundrum with um, the the ex, the, the current, the future guys. It was all complicated. And there was some lingering fellow with whom she'd had a very complex connection in this lifetime, And she came to me and she announced, I want to finish the karma with him. I just want to finish the karma like that. Hmm. I said, fortunately, I wasn't charging her any money or anything like that. Because I said, honey, I don't think I can do that for you. We can progress it. We cannot make it worse. But I think finishing is a little ambitious, especially given um, what she was willing to do is actually, I guess, how I have to put it. And I don't mean that in any way um, to denigrate her. It's just what she was able to do. And and the point being this, it's not... Well, the way this particular section starts out um, is a disciple lamenting to Master that it all seems so incredibly complicated. And when you really start thinking about karma, and especially when you start thinking about the karmic law that... Every desire has to be fulfilled. Every action has to eventually come back to its source. I mean, your brain just boils over. I mean, what can you do about that? And Swamiji asked Master when he was talking about this, every desire has to be fulfilled. Swami said, well, when I was a child and I wanted an ice cream cone and I I didn't get that ice cream cone, does that desire have to be fulfilled? Master said, yes. I mean... How do you ever even begin? And how can you tell even whether or not you're doing the right thing sometimes? Because you can't always control the consequences of your own action. And so does all that karma when people misunderstand you come roiling back on you? I was in a situation with a friend and I gave him some advice. It was ill-considered advice. Phrase it differently. It was ill-considered for me to give him that advice. I have to defend even now my perception of the situation. It was indeed accurate. But to offer the advice was ill-considered because the man involved just... It was like so not what he was ready or wanted to hear. It was just completely outside his comprehension zone. And for me to try to impose it upon him was really doing violence to his free will. So I was entirely in the wrong, even though uh, factually I might have been accurate. But his response was to become quite upset with me and to complain to Swamiji about me and actually to propose that I was incompetent altogether to be in any position um, of influence over others, any. He really thought it, it was a travesty. Sometimes I agree with him, so what can I say? But in that particular instance, I was so dismayed by the gap between my intentions and the way my intentions were received that I submitted my resignation to Swamiji. I don't know what I was resigning from. I wasn't resigning from the spiritual path, but I was resigning from the necessity to have to learn any more than I already knew. I think that's what I was trying to resign from. I wish to remain at my present level of ignorance. I think that's what my resignation letter essentially was saying. It was never a letter. It was just a conversation. Swamiji, of course, said, no way. 
There's just no way you're going to get out of it that easily, dear. Um, But he said something also to me that was extremely important that I've never forgotten. He made the comment that we are responsible for the intentions of our heart, but we are not responsible for how those intentions are received. It's very subtle, because if we were responsible for how everybody else reacts to what we're doing, I mean, really, there would be no end to it. Feels close to no end as it is, but that really ensures um, that there's no end to it. We've gotten a question very early on in the webinar tonight, so maybe I'll take that question before I go on. Am I trying to repeat it? So, giving up a desire does not cancel the result of having the desire. So, giving up a desire does not cancel the result of having the desire. Repudiating the desire doesn't neutralize the fact that you once wanted it. No, odd and terrible as it may seem, that's exactly what Master says. Because when you have the desire, you've projected that energy into the infinite. And that energy is tied to you because you you have egoically identified with that action. That action emanated from a sense of, I am the doer, I am the one who did it. So yeah, even later you can completely change your mind, but the energy is still in a flow. Now here are the mitigating factors, and this is the whole point about how to work out karma. Um, this is There's many ways to think about it, but I'll give this picture right at the beginning, and we'll gradually cover all the, all the bases here. Um, the concept of a boomerang is really the best um, image that I've ever seen for karma. Um, I've never actually thrown a boomerang, but I've seen people do it. You know, it's an interesting um, thing. You send this sort of curved object, throwing object out, and it it goes away from you for a time. But because of the shape of it, it gradually makes a turn and then comes right back to its point of origin. People who are skilled at throwing them can throw them a long distance and they still return. It's actually quite remarkable to see it. It's almost like it has a living power of its own. So every time you do something, anything, that is, comes from the, the perception of reality that identifies yourself with your ego. Now your ego is yourself identified with the limiting conditions of an astral body and a physical body and also a causal body, but that's not so relevant but the astral and physical body. We've talked about these things in earlier seminars, so I'm not going to fill in all the gaps. We're just going to assume that. So so the infinite self, which has individualized itself, is the jiva. Jiva is the Sanskrit word. We sometimes use the word soul, but jiva is more accurate. The, the jiva, which is one with the infinite. The, the jiva is like a bubble in the sea, and the bubble is not separate from the sea. The bubble is not the whole sea, the whole ocean, but it, it exists within the ocean. But ego is when that little bubble imagines itself to be all in all, that there is no ocean, there's just the bubble. And everything that happens to the bubble happens because the bubble wants it to happen. I mean, you can, I suppose waves on the sea are more accurate. Uh, but the, you see, when a wave moves on the sea, you realize it's the whole energy of the sea that's moving that wave. But the wave can get the delusion that it's the source of its own energy and that everything is happening just because I want it to happen. And even if it's not that kind of um, arrogance, um, nonetheless, it's just a deeply held belief. I mean, we, we move through life all the time thinking that we're the origin point of our own thoughts and our own feelings and feeling that what happens to our bodies is happening to us. And so any action, thought, feeling, piece of energy of any kind, desire, that emanates from the vibration that I am the wave, rather than the wave is one with the ocean, but that I am the wave, then that, that is like it, th- that thought, that perception of reality ties that energy to its perceived origin point, which is yourself and your own ego. And that's the boomerang. So you may send you send it out, and if it's if it's projected with a lot of energy, it may take a little while to make its circuit to come all the way back to you. 
but sooner or later it must because it's tethered. It, that energy is not free. It's tethered to the thought that the wave is the one who did it. And it's only a, a perception of reality, but it's a binding perception of reality as far, as far as the karmic law is concerned. Now, between the time you send the boomerang out and the time it takes for that boomerang to come all the way back and come to you can actually be a relatively speaking long period of time. Um, it can even be incarnations. There is a force that Master calls the thwarting cross currents of ego, which is you may be, let's say, you're an evil, hurtful person, but you're also a very powerful person. So you can exert a lot of evil, hurtful actions, but you may have enough power under your control, be that money or influence or just the ability to outsmart and outwit destiny. Um, and that um, energy can keep you in front of the boomerang for a really long time. So it may take a while for that boomerang to make its way all the way back to you. Or circumstances may be such, maybe somebody murders you and you want revenge. And it may take a couple of lifetimes or ten lifetimes before circumstances shift enough that you have your opportunity for revenge. But that thought of revenge will, will come, you know, if you, if you send it out into the ether, it will eventually uh, well, I was going. That's not a very good example. It will come back to you, but the karma is is always tied to you. The desire for revenge. Um, you might meet someone in some lifetime, and you just really want to hurt them, and you don't even know why. But a long time ago, you sent out this thought of revenge, and you want to fulfill it now. Um, but the energy that returns to you is also affected by the vibration of consciousness that you have when that energy makes its way back to you. Um, and, and I think you can think of that like um, a meteor coming in from outer space may start of, at a certain size, but as it, it, it makes its way through the Earth's atmosphere, the conditions of the Earth's atmosphere may melt or set that meteor on fire or it, some way substantially change it. So by the time it hits the earth, it doesn't have the same, uh, 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 it's not constituted the same way it was when it entered the earth's atmosphere. So the purpose of these desires or um, balancing energies uh, returning to us is to help us to learn who and what we really are, what the nature of reality is, <coughs> in earlier in earlier webinars we talked about the law of karma being unlearned lessons and the opportunity we have to understand the true nature of ourselves in reality to break to transcend the ego to overcome the jiva's false identification with limitation <coughs> okay so let's say we put out a strong desire to be married to a certain person. <coughs> a strong desire to have a certain position, fame, um, wealth, even to own a certain home, to have a certain amount of money. And we may work hard in one incarnation to make that happen, but maybe we don't quite succeed. Conditions aren't just right, but we die with that desire really strongly in place. And reincarnation being what it was, is and the thwarting cross-currents of ego being what they are, one of the things that makes it difficult to assess karma is that it doesn't always happen just cause-effect, cause-effect, cause-effect because of the thwarting cross-currents of ego. We have, we have many desires happening simultaneously. Conditions are not always right for all desires to be um, worked out. Um, we have so many uh, unfinished karmas that we have to deal with that we just randomly work on any set of them at any time. But let's say we progress. Let's say we, we realize we, we, we see the emptiness of fame, for example, or we realize that great wealth is simply not necessary, or that that particular relationship really is just not so necessary to have it. So by the time the desire that was sent out makes its way back to us, the aura, our our energetic field and our understanding of life 
may have radically shifted from the time when we sent the energy out. So the energy does have to return, but the way it affects us, the strength with which it hits, and the, the way we receive and respond to that energy can be radically shifted by the passage of time and by the spiritual growth that we undergo. Not the least of which is the presence of a guru. We may have set in motion certain very challenging karmas, and there's an example in this chapter that Master refers to of a boy, a young boy in the ashram who had an accident and his finger was cut off. But the boy himself asserted, oh, that would have been much worse except that Master protected me. And Master said later that just before, the days just before that accident happened, uh, Master saw a dark cloud hovering over this, this boy. And finally that karma made itself all the way back. But the guru, and this is where it also states in this chapter that the most powerful way to work out your karma is to have a guru to help you. Because first of all, the guru can guide you and help you understand, you know, what you should be working on and how you should be working it and where you should be in life. But also the guru himself... um, can insert his magnetic aura between you and that returning energy. And the Guru has uh, infinite capacity to absorb all energies and be completely unaffected by it. The Guru is like literally like an umbrella on a rainy day. And it may be that by the time whatever that karmic boomerang is that's ready, by the time it catches up with you, you may have changed so much, gotten on the spiritual path and have a guru that the master knows that the, the karma has to fulfill itself, but he'll absorb a great deal of the shock. And that's like that little boy, who knows, maybe he was supposed to be killed at that, that point. Maybe he was supposed to be maimed in a way that was going to be much more um, critical to his well-being. But because of master's protection, the energy had to come but it only resulted in a finger being lost instead of whatever the power of that energy would have been if it didn't have to first go through the Guru. And the Guru just says, you don't really need this. You could go through it and you deserve it in the sense that you instigated it, but I'll protect you. And this is what, among many reasons why um, the Guru is such an extraordinary blessing. Just It simply cannot be overstated. Um, how the Guru helps us um, to, to work through all this karma. Because once we have understood that God is the goal of life, that yoga is the path to that goal, and had the good karma to find exactly where we belong and who is there to help us, we just don't need the same kind of lessons anymore. The fundamental purpose of all karma, um, the, the, the underlying basic need, which is for us to turn away from self and to turn toward God, has been accomplished. And then the Guru can gauge for us how much we um, need this or not. So, say the desire is for an ice cream cone, and you know the, the energy is just there and it will come back. We have to be satisfied. That desire has to be satisfied. Now exactly what does that mean? Do we actually have to eat the ice cream cone at some point or another? Well, I don't know, maybe we do. I mean, haven't you ever just woken up with the absolute need for an ice cream cone? <laughs> Are you making new karma? Are you fulfilling old karma? Um, just the other day, I, I don't often eat ice cream, but just the other day, somewhat uncharacteristically, I just got up, I had a friend in the house, we're going to get ice cream, I said. <laughs> we just drove off and got ice cream, and I absolutely enjoyed it completely. Was that new karma or old karma? I can't say. But let me tell you more intelligently what's meant by the desire has to be fulfilled. This is, this is what's really meant. The details of the ice cream cone I really can't unravel to that extent. But here's what it's about. And this is the way Swamiji puts it. We learn from having our desires frustrated in the sense that, you know, if we really desperately want something in life and we don't have it, um, we may we learn how to make a life even without having that desire fulfilled. We learn that we can survive. 
we may even learn that we can be happy. So we learn something from being frustrated in our desires. But if we don't get something that we think will make us happy or happier, the thought lingers that it's still a desirable thing to have. And that even though I got along fine, gosh, it would be nice if I could experience whatever it is. So Swamiji says we learn more from being fulfilled because when we actually have that and get to, to find out just how happy it will make, it, make us, um, the, the understanding at that point is more profound because it's not imaginary then. So I have my beautiful home. I have my wonderful husband. I have my fabulous children. I have my fame, my money, my success in life. And it's not that it's terrible. It's that the heart longs for more. And so I no longer imagine that my happiness is dependent on having that particular desire fulfilled. And in, that's how um, all desires eventually need to be satisfied because if I believe that anything is required for my happiness, anything other than God, to that extent I, I will protect that and I will not give over everything to God. So all desires have to be fulfilled in order for us to finally and irrevocably learn that God alone is the only answer. And this is what you see in the lives, you see it in your own life, and you see it in the lives of great souls all around you. They, they just are not attracted to things that many other people are attracted to. And it's not because they scorn them or hate them or think them sinful. They just don't look very fun. It's the only way I can think to say it. Just other people think it's tons of fun to have all this stuff happen. And the one who has lived through many, many incarnations, the desires, I've, I've been there, I've done that, exactly. And the desire has been fulfilled, and now I need to go the, to the fulfilling source of all desires. Um, we have another question. I'm fairly new on the path. I've read Swamiji say that you need to have physical contact with a guru, and I feel a strong connection with Master, so what does it mean that we cannot have physical connection? Um, the devotee asks, uh, repeats that Swamiji said you have to have physical contact with the guru, and he's strongly drawn to Master, but of course Master's not in the body anymore, so how do you resolve that? Because I was just speaking of the importance, importance of the guru. Um, Swamiji says that that contact can come through disciples. And that, that's really the simple answer, that the disciples do not substitute for, the disciples of Yogananda do not substitute for Yogananda, but the disciples of Yogananda who act on his behalf and who have, who discernibly have attunement with him, and therefore the presence of the Master is palpable through them, then they act on Master's behalf. Now Swamiji pointed this out because even when Master was living, um, he had others, including Swamiji, initiate disciples on Master's behalf, but it was done through uh, Master's disciples. So if even while he was living, he could use the disciple in that way, it only makes sense that afterwards, after Master's passing, he will continue to use the disciples in that way. Um, part of the importance of this is let me just think how to say this. There's a kind of living presence that, that we, we learn from those who know. And we can learn from books and so on, but it's, it's difficult to really understand the path without living examples. And we may have this, um, no one can teach me but a self-realized master kind of attitude, but we can learn so much from other disciples. That's why master wanted us to live in community. And, and have satsang together. That's why he called it self-realization fellowship. He could have just called it self-realization, but he called it fellowship because the disciples coming together in the Guru's name um, magnetize the Guru's energy, which is important, but also they, they exemplify, uh, the, the, those who are in tune, they exemplify what it is to be a disciple and in their attunement with the Guru, can become a, a pure channel for his energy. Um, 
And in that way, that Swamiji explained, you know, um, Master even said at one point, you know, for those who are left behind, I or one of the other disciples will come in and uh, bring them over. You know, it's that he spoke of the disciples as his instrument. It would have to be that way. Um, the other side of that is, you see, if if it's not possible for the Master to reach us after his body is gone, um, then we have to keep changing gurus all the time because uh, a, a self-realized Master is not going to incarnate as often as we do. I mean, if you just think of it in the most practical way, the avatar will only come every so often. And in between, we're going to have a lot of incarnations in which the avatar is not physically present. And so that means, unless we switch gurus constantly, which is by no means the way to self-realization, we're going to often be having incarnations in which the, uh, the, the, the founding avatar of the line of inspiration is not physically present. But always then, the energy will be gathered around uh, saints and teachers who can make that master's um, presence more living to us. And it's that actual living contact um, that energizes us. If we, if we just relax and use our common sense, it's self-evident. It's, it's just self-evident. It's just the way it is. Think about Mother Teresa and how, and how Mother Teresa of Calcutta and think how vibrantly alive she made Jesus to the men and women who followed her. And Jesus was the, was the guru. He was the avatar of that line. But Mother Teresa was how um, the modern-day disciples of Christ connected. And they don't talk about it in the same way, the guru, the disciple, the touch of the guru, and so on, but common sense shows you that's how it works. And, you know, in, in Ananda's work, um, Swami Kriyananda um, exemplified for us and and transmitted to us the clarity and the power of Master. And Swamiji passed that responsibility on to Jyotish to personify and be a channel of uh, Master's presence. He's not. That doesn't mean he's the only channel, um, but he's a he's a true channel of that. And for all those whose karma is connected to Swamiji to Master through Jyotish, then. The power is still there. Um, St. Francis of Assisi, just the, it goes on and on. There's just many, many examples. So we must be humble in our spiritual search and um, seek out those whose vibration uh, we can sense is the vibration of the Master, and then the Guru is able to come to us in that way. I mean, those who don't seek that out and try to do it just on their own, well, you can tell by the fruits. It's very difficult. And that's how, that's why Swamiji put it that way. There's, I'm sure there's more subtle laws to it, but um, I, I'm not qualified to speak on them authoritatively. I can only say that that is what Swamiji said. So, in that sense, um, Master's liberating presence is as much with us now as it ever has been insofar as we are able to receive it. And, you, and now this is where, um, in this chapter, what, what Master offers us, because he, he talks about the chapter is called Working Out Our Karma. So what he's saying is that rather than worry or even think about every little desire that we have, what we really want to do is we want to cut off, as Master puts it, cut it off at the source. And the source of all karma is identification with our own ego and identifying the wave as the source of whatever the wave does. So what Master suggests is the way to extricate ourselves from all karma is to continually reinforce by thought and action the, the idea that the, that the little wave that, I, that appears to be me is really just a bulge on the ocean. It's just a piece of this much greater reality. And in everything we do, we try to concentrate that on that and also affirm and behave accordingly, the way he puts it. You know, God is the doer in everything that we do. It's not possible to work out karma, as some people try to propose. Well, I don't want to get any karma, so I'll just do nothing. 
And sometimes you see people who drop out, and there's an example given here of this man that Master met somewhere, I think in Arizona, and he was just utterly disheveled and um, unproductive. And Master sort of said to him, you know, like, who are you and why are you like this? And the man declared, I'm a renunciate. And Master said, you have, you know, given up, uh, you've given up, well, you've just, you've given up a conventional life, but now you're simply attached to disorder. It's not like you're free, it's just like you're now identified with this chaotic, disordered being. That's not the same as being free, even as Master said, the decision to refrain from action is in itself an action. You're, the action you're taking is restraining your impulses to act. Now, that's not the same, and this is where, as really transcending the ego, because to transcend the ego is not to stop the wave from being a wave, and not to stop it from going through its motions on the ocean. It's to not define yourself, but to realize that everything that flows through you is actually that you're just an open window for the infinite. Swamiji is always often fond of telling the story when uh, someone complimented him on his uh, good sermon. He says, God is the doer. And the woman who heard it said, oh, I, I really like that. And Swami said that she thought it was good, but not that good. And, and what Swami's often, he often tells that story and, and tries to get us to understand, it's not like everything we do is perfect. It's just realizing that the ocean cannot exist I mean, the, the wave cannot exist separate from the ocean, and that we must constantly be training our consciousness to literally just feel yourself as part of a greater reality. That's the way I, I love to think of it. I'm part of a greater reality. And once that thought begins to grow, that we become less attached, identified, and defined by our individual actions, then we're, we're cutting off the karma at the source because then even that which flows through us is not tied to us. So that someone like Master, or like Swami Kriyananda, who was in, in, intensely active in their life. Swamiji was, you know, had a prodigious creativity. So much flowed through him, but he, he never saw himself as the one who was doing it. It was happening, the wave was moving around, but his identity was with the greater reality. And if this wave in the middle of that greater reality wanted to do all these things, that's when she complimented his sermon and he said, God is the doer. He was there, it happened. He saw it happen. He might have even remembered some of what he said, but he never saw himself as the source. Now that, that sounds confusing until you begin to get in tune with it. I'm so amused by this, even in the spiritual work, um, when you try to repudiate personal responsibility, <laughs> how often people try to persuade you to take it. I always, whenever people do that to me, which they do from time to time, I just, I want to say, be my friend here. You know, you'll say, oh, it was, you know, it was so, someone will say it was so inspiring. Yes, it was really wonderful. God is the doer. Or there was a great inspiration in the room. Yes, but someone had to channel it. <sighs> All right, well, you know, so it, it did come through this unit of consciousness. Well, that had to be, you had to be there. Oh, please, you know, please, just don't bother. Let's help each other in this. I've seen uh, Swami Kriyananda, the, and the fun of it is this also, which is whatever that is beautiful that really does flow through you, and the, the magnitude of that is the exact definition of where you, where you have cease to exist. I mean, if the, if the sun shines brightly through the window, it's because the window has become perfectly clear. And so when we're praising the bright sunlight, it's because the window really got out of the way. And the extent to which that sunlight is mottled or blocked is the extent to which there are obscuring features on the window. So what one admires, by definition, is the absence of interfering ego. And so, even for oneself, that's the way you begin to realize that there's a grace that flows through, and I'm not the source of anything. Now, one has to also get in the habit, though, of you do your best, you, you have to put out your as much energy as you can. Master gives us the formula here, 
that self-realization is 25% the effort of the devotee, 25% the effort of the guru on the devotee's behalf, and 50% the grace of God. However, Master points out, rightly so, that that 25% of the total is 100% of our personal effort. But that personal effort needs to constantly be directed. It's a little bit a little bit hard to get a handle on. Um, and, of course then, meditation figures deeply and prominently in all of this. Because meditation is the direct practice in which we withdraw our involvement with our senses, with our bodies, with our work, with our relationships, with the world around us. And we just move back to that point of, of pure connection in which all of the superficial aspects of what we call ourselves are just cease, cease to cling to us, either for a short or a long period of time. And we become deeply centered in that unchanging part of ourselves in which even incarnations just swirl around that. And we just live there. And, and once, you, once you glimpse that at all, whether through meditation or a moment of grace or a moment of creative work or uh, of deep love, whatever might prompt that. Well, first of all, it awakens within us a, a desire for that freedom, for that freedom, for that particular state of joy. And Master points out to us most comfortingly that the desire for God, once it arises, also must be fulfilled. And it must be fulfilled, again, for a very practical reason. Um, once, you've, once you've touched, even in the slightest way, that level of fulfillment, nothing else will do it for you after that. You may try. You may try to um, have a good time in lots of other ways, but always in the background, whatever your experiences is going to be compared um, to that profound fulfillment. And you may chase a lot of dreams for a lot of lifetimes, but everything will fall short. And, and eventually, your, your own uh, realization of the difference. It's just like, again, think of it in very human terms. You may um, be in work that's unsuitable for you, and gradually you find work that really suits you, and the, the commitment and the joy uh, with which you work in something that suits you, just you can never go back to that which is um, not your real temperament. This, this is where, this is who I am. Um, you may have various unsatisfactory love relationships in your life until you find someone who's truly compatible. And then you, you just can't go back to uh, what appeared attractive to you before because now you know it's not. And so that desire for God, once it's deeply rooted, and it becomes deeply rooted um, through a touch of experience, either of the lack of fulfillment of everything else, or I should say, and the potential ful fulfillment within the divine. And so even though the, the wheel may continue to turn for a while, you can, never, you can never have the same relationship to the world again. You really can't. That's why... The devotee is never lost because it, it, it desire for that fulfillment itself will just keep bringing you back again and again. Master also says something very interesting about the guru, which is, is fascinating. He, he often talked about his incarnation as a special dispensation, that there was a certain power associated with him in the way he describes it in this particular chapter. He says, even in an ocean, there'll be areas of extreme calm. And he talks about even in the tumultuous world of Maya, um, the, the atmosphere around a holy person is an area of calm. And when you move into that atmosphere, then uh, it's possible to make um, much greater spiritual progress than you could otherwise. And the presence of Master and the presence of his direct disciples in our lives the enormous um, transference by Swami Kriyananda of Master's teachings on so many levels, all of those 
really help create that special dispensation, the opportunity either to be in community physically or even now in this early Dwapara stage through these conversations that we can have over the internet where you can put yourself in the company of other truth seekers, you know, active, interactively or by receiving um, an, un an understanding of the teachings from those who may have had more opportunity to learn than has yet been given to you, that we, we enter into that island of calm. And you have to also understand, you see, that's also the Guru's influence on your life. I mean, the, the fact that I'm sitting here is because of Swami Kriyananda and, and Master and Babaji and Lahiri Mahashaya and Jesus, the whole crowd, the whole um, pantheon of, of, of saints and masters. I mean, that energy is just in a direct line r right in this moment. And that's our grace. And that is also this, that's the touch of the Master for us. Um, his vibration coming through this direct lineage in this way. Um, I hope that that's clear because it's a deeply important part of this whole teaching. And the more you move into that vibration, because this um, shedding of the identification of the ego, it's just, it's not so easy to do. And it's not a question of doing violence to yourself, which some people think. Some people put themselves at war. And the ego is the enemy, and they're always beating on the poor ego like this. It gets very, very confused. The way we transcend the ego is entirely different than that. The ego, is, it's, it's okay. I mean, the jiva is identified with that body. But what we do is we expand our identification to be so much more. And that body's still going, as Swami Kriyananda put it. It's an event for which he was responsible, Swami Kriyananda. But he never defined his reality. That event was just this little wave on this great ocean. And Master puts it this way, you know, it's, it's, it's wonderful to laugh sometimes and joke and enjoy your friends and enjoy your life. He said, but, but don't ever abandon your inner calmness. Even when you're doing outward things, even when you're participating in outward ways, don't ever separate yourself from your own center. And this is what I was saying earlier, the power of deep meditation. We, we enter into that reality, and even when the time of meditation is done, or the, the grace is somewhat withdrawn, we can always hold on to a fragment of it, and everything that we bring into this world, no matter how far we have to bring it, is always on that thread. And you see, that that's how you work out karma, and that's how you stop making more karma, because you've just stepped above or, or behind the level where the canceling karma is always taking place. The energy still flows, but there's no you there to identify with it. The karma of a, a free soul um, goes to the benefit of mankind, is how um, Master put it. Some people think that if we give up our desires and don't, you know, aren't driven by what I want, that somehow it'll make us less energetic and less ambitious, less motivated. Actually, it's oddly enough, it's just the opposite. Because to hold strong desires, um, it, the corollary of that is always the fear that they won't be fulfilled. And you know, you're, you're striving, but many people who are very ambitious and strive very hard are also very tense inside and often very frightened inside. Even if they have confidence, underneath it there's always the thought, if I have to have this, what if I don't? What happens to me if I don't get it? And this is why people sometimes who experience a reversal of fortune just never recover from it, because there was no alternative for them. Whereas, if you're actually, and this is right from the Bhagavad Gita, if you're actually uh, practicing nishkam karma, which is action without desire for the fruits of the action. You do um, the needful because it is what God wants you to do. But the result of what you do, it does, you, you don't seek it for yourself. And in a sense, this is what Swami said to me when I 
was criticized by that man for giving him inappropriate advice. Um, that I was, I was responsible for, for the attitude of my own heart. But after that, it's nishkam karma. If he was able to understand what I offered him, then that was fine. And if he rejected it and turned on me, that was equally fine. I was just doing what I knew to be right. Now, as it happens at that time, my understanding of what was right was immature. But my intention wasn't bad. And that's what Swami was telling me. It was immature and misguided. Um, but you had a good heart. You really were trying to help him. Now, this is where uh, Master also says to us, it's not just a question of, of giving to God every great success. Wow, that was a great sermon you just gave God, you know, and you, and you offer it back to him. But also, when things don't work out exactly right, when even though you tried your best, it didn't happen the way you expected, you also have to be impersonal enough to realize that this is also part of God's flow. Everything that comes through me is part of God's flow. I can't just give him the good and keep the bad for myself. Why would I own the bad? And as, as Master said, this is not an excuse for carelessness or malice um, or, or, or irresponsibility. We, we need to do our best because to not do our best is to succumb to tamasic energy. Um, we have to always be working um, not to be influenced um, by low consciousness and laziness and lack of attention to detail and irresponsible and not keeping our words and our commitments is to allow ourselves to be influenced by tamasic energy and that will not serve our consciousness. That will not lead to freedom. That will keep us tightly bound. So we must. the reason we have to strive for excellence is because we have to constantly be striving to overcome the, the downward pulling, pulling forces within us. But the definition of success is the effort to do that. And if karmic forces are simply too strong, or our judgment is too immature, or whatever it might be, try, as we, try our best, if it still fizzles, then there's nothing more we can do. We don't have to hold that to ourselves and define ourselves now by our failures. We've, we've, we've been an instrument of the energy as best we could be and nishkam karma. If this is the result, I have no desire for the fruits one way or another. I can't not desire the good fruits and then desire, which is really what it is, the bad fruits. It just doesn't make any sense, you see? And this is we practice being even-minded and cheerful in all circumstances. It's very difficult for me to even glimpse that. And I spent many years feeling that the way to overcome my ego was to fall into a state of despair every time something went wrong. And, you know, just spent, you know, many dramatic days and weeks. But I remember vividly uh, an experience that was, it was not my own doing, but it was my friend. And she had been inattentive in a certain circumstance, and because of her inattention, she'd caused Swamiji a certain amount of inconvenience. It was fairly, fairly notable inconvenience. Nothing, was, nothing is permanent, so it doesn't matter, and it wasn't catastrophic, but it was inconvenient. It was an embarrassment and an inconvenience for him. And it was all her doing. She just hadn't paid attention, and she'd set a chain of events in motion that, in, in motion that caused him a lot of grief. Three or four days later, she was still just moping around. And Swami just turned to her and said, you know, what's wrong with you? Oh, she said, I feel so badly because... And then she kind of summarized the whole incident and once again took responsibility. And Swami's response to her, what an egoic response, he said, <laughs> which is exactly what you don't expect. I'm, I'm, you know, flagellating my ego here. How can you call me egoic? And he said, because... You're so shocked that you made a mistake that all these days later you can't think about anything else. You see, what an egoic response. I think I have, I have so little humility that one error just, I have to worship it forever because it's, it's such a stunning blow to realize I could make a mistake. True humility just says, wow, look at that. You know, I did my best and made some bad judgments here and look what happened. Well, God, you're just going to have to help me. 
next time around to do it better. That's what it is to just let it go. You see how different that is? Then, oh, woe is me. Look what I did. Look how awful it was. Why does this always happen to me? As Swami just says, if you continually throw dust on your own head, then your consciousness is filled with dust and your own head. Whereas if you say, hmm, well, that wasn't the best, but these things happen. And I tried, and I, next time I'll just have to try more carefully. But then you just lay it at God's feet. And Swamiji has often told us that the Divine Mother, Master, God, and Gurus, they're very happy when we do that because then we are cutting karma off at the root. We're saying God is the doer. I may be responsible here and I'm doing my best, but if it doesn't work, nishkam karma. Just, I remember once friends had worked really hard to put on a program for Swamiji in a, another city, and uh, it just fizzled. It just, the circumstances weren't right. It wasn't going to happen. And before it happened, Swami just said to them, nishkam karma. Just, you did what you could, and now it, if it hasn't worked, don't make it worse by claiming it for yourself. Now, once we're free, uh, we have no desire for the fruits of our actions, far from making us, making, it, making us unambitious and unwilling to act. We're suddenly free to do anything we want. We can try anything we want. We don't have to be afraid anymore. It'll either work or it won't work. It'll be a success or it won't. But we're not so full of desire that the, the fear is paralyzing to us. I mean, most people's creativity is at least half paralyzed by fear. And when that creativity ever flows for anyone who's ever had real creative moments, it's when, when, when there is uh, no self-consciousness, when all that's happening is the flow of energy. And when you're really in that flow of energy, it's not hard to give the credit to God because it's, it's self-evident that you didn't have any part of it. But when you're thinking, I wonder if this is going to work, I wonder if the reviewers will like it. I wonder if it'll sell. I wonder if people will praise me. Poof, immediately everything is just frozen. But when you're doing it just for the fun of it. I learned, I learned about intuitive work and Nishkam Karma, oddly enough, when I had to learn to cook. And Swami kind of intuitively transferred to me a certain understanding of how to cook. It's a different story, but I really just didn't understand. And he was able to just awaken in me a certain understanding but even though I love to cook, or I used to love to cook, I don't much anymore. Um, and I think it's a very useful skill to have. And I really always enjoy feeding people, especially feeding them tasty, healthy food. It, was, it never had much importance to me. It's like to be a good cook just didn't have anything to do with my self-esteem. It was, it was so extra, so peripheral to my well-being that I actually really learned how to do it properly. Properly in the sense of you just do your best and you leave the results to God. Because I had no fear of failure in it. Uh, essentially no fear of failure. Because it, it didn't touch my self-worth, whether or not the soup came out well. I preferred it to come out well because everybody had to eat it. But if it came out badly, it, it, it just didn't affect me. Now, what's the difference between that and whatever? Make the big list. Being a ballet dancer, a singer, a writer, whatever the big list might be, what is the difference? I mean, it's, it's all just energy flowing through you. If you can capture it in one area, that's the, the origin point of something Swami's mother used to say. If something is worth doing, it's worth doing badly. <laughs> I've always enjoyed that because sometimes when you take on something you have no chance of doing really well, um, and, but do the best you can, you actually learn a lot about how to do everything. I built a, a set of stairs once, three stairs to lead up into my trailer when I was living in this little trailer in Ananda village years ago. Prior to that, I just took one giant step to get in, and I decided it would be easier if I had stairs. And I, I'm really a horrible carpenter and have no interest in learning how to be good. It's just it's not a skill that I would ever use. So I just, you know, whacked and hammered some... Uh, wood together and made a very serviceable pair of stairs that was quite sturdy that uh, stayed there as long as the trailer stayed there. And I was so proud of those stairs. <laughs> I would show them to everyone. And anyone who was a carpenter 
We just look at this horrible, you know, ugly, awkward, uh, overbuilt, bent-nailed creation. But for me, it was a, a certain understanding of uh, freedom and non-identification with the result. So the result is beautiful. It's no more mine. So the result is terrible. It's no more mine. It's, it's we're all just part of a greater reality and we're just trying to do the part that God has given us to do. And when you cut the tie of karma there, you don't have to worry about all the details. All the rest of the details will just roll themselves out. Get yourself in right relationship to God and then everything else will follow. When that woman came to me all those years ago, wanted to finish the karma, but she didn't come and say, I want to realize God. She didn't come and say, how can I transcend my ego? You know, how can I lose this suffocating sense of self? Which was, that's how you finish karma. You don't finish karma by just getting it all straight. That very thought is what creates karma. As a master says in this chapter, you can, just, you can never get the world organized enough. You can never finish everything by getting this one to agree and this one to agree and that one to accept your apology and I'll forgive this one. It's just hopeless that way. You're just, the likelihood of creating more waves as you go along is so great that's just not the direction to go. You go inward into meditation. You find that part of yourself that is eternally the same regardless of how this swirls around us. You you hold on to that as a thread no matter what else you're doing you're you're always just have i'm sure you've seen sometimes mothers have children who are so active that they resort to putting them on leashes which some people may object to but i can sympathize with it so that child still has a certain amount of freedom but he's always on that tether or let's think about somebody walking a spirited dog and they have those uh, uh, leashes now that un- pull out from a, a little rotor thing and you can pull the leash in or pull the leash out and the dog can run and run but he's never actually disconnected from the one who's responsible for him and so with us you go into meditation and you find that place that is always the same one of my earliest childhood memories is being having my feelings hurt by my mother and I couldn't have been maybe two, maybe three. But I remember curling up and, and deliberately going into that place that, that was going to be the same no matter what. And um, that was just, there's no other word for it except a reincarnational memory. I knew that. I knew how to do that. I didn't call it meditation. I didn't call it God. But I knew it was there. And that the surface was ruffled, but the interior wasn't. So we meditate, we find that place, and then like, like that dog leash, you know, we may string it out really far, but we never entirely let go of it. So that no matter what happens, what we do, we never give ourselves completely to it. We're always just a part of a greater reality, and this is what the greater reality is doing for now. And in that inner realization, we form that bond with, with the guru and constantly, constantly, we are always aware that we are not alone, that we are being guided, that the one who knows the way out of this maze is always walking with us, always walking with us. There's an amazing uh, statement in this particular um, section of the book where Master's telling the story of Saint Anthony um, and his decades of solitary meditation in these um, isolated tombs, and finally having a final confrontation with uh, Maya and conquering Maya and the divine coming, and Christ coming before him, and Anthony is suddenly freed of all karma, of all um, limiting conditions, and he says, suddenly a great light appeared and Jesus Christ stood before him. Satan vanished. In the ecstasy of divine awakening, um, 
St. Anthony recalled all the incarnations that he had been seeking God. But then Master puts in here, and Swami describes it, Oh, Master cried, I know that experience. What joy comes with it. Isn't that sweet? There's Master, an avatar, talking to his disciple, and he himself is remembering, Ah, that moment of, of, of liberation, what joy, what joy, what joy. For all of us, once the desire for God has been awakened, it must be fulfilled. Joy to you.